0: I am going to take an unofficial poll. I'd like to see all hands raised for those of you. Actually, by the way, Trevor and Christina Miller are here. Stand up a second. All the way. Give them a hand. Wow. More more missionaries in our midst. All right. Very nice. I want to see a show of hands. How many of you in here? Have some sort of American Indian in your genealogical roots. Raise your hand. Raise keep your hands up. That's percentage wise, that's about forty percent. Wouldn't you say, Derek? Take a look. Hold your (laughs) Derek, that's your job. Hold your hands up again. Derek, give me a percentage. What's that? Yeah. Okay. First service, I'm telling you, there's about half, and I said 50%, and they said, no. No, and I'm looking over, it's Ken in the Dutch side over there. That's the problem. But so, so I would say about 40% of people in here say they got some kind of American Indian roots in their background. I, I believe the majority of my life that I did. My dad told us we had Choctaw Indian in our heritage. And because of that, my dad said, that's why we tan so easy. That's why I have an Indian beard, Apache here, Apache there. <laughs> See, Indians are funny too. When we played cowboys and Indians, I was always the Indian. I liked Daniel Boone because his sidekick was Mingo. And Mingo looked, he was actually a European actor. who would put on a black wig, but he looked Indian. And my dad looked exactly like that guy. And my mom, she worked for Avon. She's an Avon lady. And they always had those Avon cal- uh, catalogs. And they had this hatchet necklace in there, and I had her get me a hatchet necklace, you know, and so I was a true Indian, and I was a Cleveland Indians fan, see, so I was true Indian. Well, two years ago, my sister took a DNA test, my blood sister. Here's what she found. Results are, my family is 50% Western European, which includes Germany, France, and the Dutch. We're 15% Eastern European, mostly Polish. Scandinavian, 8% Negro, specifically from Mali, 6% Jewish, 4% Finnish, 4% Irish, 2% from Spain, Portugal, 1% from India, 1% Great Britain, 1% Italian, Greek, not one drop of Indian blood. Not one drop. Man, that was discouraging. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. And then when I look at the rest of the list, I am I am truly Heinz 57. I mean, that's the makings of a madman. That's That explains it. I've got everything in me. Well, in the same way, we are often very unsure about our roots when it comes to faith and our denominational loyalties. By definition, our church is Baptist. And many Baptists, if you ask them, they have a different opinion on our heritage. Actually, I read a book that said True Baptists can trace their lineage from Roger Williams in Rhode Island to the Anabaptists in Europe, all the way to the Apostles. Straight line. Pam. That's ridiculous. The whole truth is it's more like my Heinz 57 makeup. We are a conglomeration of a lot of church history debates, arguments over the years, over the centuries. We may not be of the same denominational title, but most Christian churches, I'm going to say outside of the Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christian church, most Christian churches share similar theological roots and understanding. Theology is an, it's really basically an issue of ideas and thought patterns. And for the most part, our ideas are Protestant. We are people of protest. And by protest, it was the massive 16th century culture, earth-shattering shaking that we call the Reformation. I'm not talking about Reformation denominationally. I'm talking about the idea of reforming the church that really took hold 500 years ago. Specifically, at the end of October, we're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the Wittenberg Church. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so you can think what you want about why you're Baptist, why you're Methodist, why you're Lutheran. Some people, I'm a Baptist, always will be. I'm nothing, never will be. But what happened 500 years ago has deeply impacted every one of you. And today, we're going to begin on our series that we're going to take the next five weeks in October and call it the five solas. Sola means, in Latin, alone. By faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That's what all five of those are. And again, we're going today talking about sola Fide. These are the ideas that were forged in a reformation and they still impact us. And I praise God for them. Today I get to discuss the issue for me personally. If I had one topic to talk about, I'd talk about this for the rest of my life. Actually, I asked as as pastors talked about what we want to talk about. I took this right away because this message today, faith alone, has transformed me it is transforming. It's the doctrine of justification. It's sola fide. Go ahead. By faith alone. It comes from Romans 5.1. Therefore, listen to this, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. That's our topic for today. Let's ask God's Let's ask God's favor on this. Let's pray. Lord, I have two simple requests. First of all, help us to understand. There's a lot to think about, but help us to understand this. But secondly, I pray we would rejoice in this. Understanding and joy. That's my prayer. Please send it, God. In your name we pray. Amen. The topic of sola Day deals with the two most important questions any person can ever wrestle with. And my opinion is this. If you don't wrestle with these two questions and you don't understand the answer to these two questions, you are a lost soul in danger of damnation if you can't answer these questions for yourself. Here's the two questions. Number one, How can a man be made right with God? What this means is how, how. What do I need to do in order to stand on my own before a holy God? Without my parents there, without my pastor there, how can I face God alone? Second question, are good works, meaning religious things that I do, morally good things that I do, are good works the basis for being made right, or are they the byproduct of salvation? You could ask it like this. What comes first? Good works and then salvation, or salvation and then good works? It's very important. Incredibly important. In my first 23 years of living, I could not answer those questions. I really couldn't. I tried everything to please God at first and what I'm going to tell you is how my mind worked and some of yours does too so don't remember your Heinz 57 crazy like I am too but my first 23 years of living I thought being a good Christian was being a good boy who went to church on Sunday and wore a tie I thought being a good Christian was taking communion on Sunday every Sunday I really did I thought to get to heaven, I needed to, I needed to do the Ten Commandments and also watch the movie The Ten Commandments all the way through. Man, I, I'll tell you, I thought I paid penance by watching that movie. And I would sit there. Everybody else fall asleep. But I would cheer Charlton Heston on for four straight hours. And I really believed that. I would pray for 13 years to St. Christopher. I had a medal that I was named after. And I'd pray to him every day. I thought that helped me get into heaven. I would, after a good Sunday service, I would eat my grandma's greasy chicken and not complain. And you might think, well, what it, I really thought I was being a good Christian by being nice to my grandma. I tried to perform good works because I thought they were the basis. I thought they preceded salvation. I really believe this, and a lot of you do too, the way to get into heaven is to do good, more good things than bad. So if this is the bad side and this is good, I'm in. And do you know what really, it, you know the denominator it has come to? If I'm not as bad as Hitler, I'm in. That's where it's really, that's how far Christianity has got. So those good things always seem to be a matter of opinion. I could ask a hundred different people, a hundred different priests, and often they'd give me a hundred different answers. Wear a scapular, Go to confession. Pray to Mary. Go to Magadori in Yugoslavia. Fast on Lent? Don't swear on Lent. But I was confused. So what do I need to do? This is what Solopide is about. We're going to answer this, and we're going to be very clear. So to understand the subject, we need to draw out for you a historical sketch. In your bulletin, if you pull them out, I've got the sermon in there. And I've got a timeline in there. I've got a lot of different things to write down. I'm going to ask you to fill that out and learn it. Because some of you don't know how to answer these questions. And you have to. I want to be the pastor when I go to heaven and I see God, and God's like, did you tell him? Did you tell them how to know me? This is it. This is it. And it's on you. And so for me, it's important to know first where we came from. We don't just spring up Baptist-like mushrooms. Pop, I'm a Baptist, and I talk like that. Give a heart a handshake. Give Brother Chris a heart a handshake. That's not how you become, that's not, stop that. I actually talked to my wife about this series, and she won't like me saying it. She goes, well, really was the Reformation that big a deal? I mean, come on. Sorry, Michelle, but I've, I know a lot of people feel that, so that's why I said that. Why? I've heard some people say the Reformation, what are we talking about that for? It kind of sounds dusty and old. Because it's so important. It's everything to us. And so to properly answer this, let's look at history. First of all, did you know that at the time of the Reformation, before it happened, the Gospel was buried in mountains of dirt and mystical, medieval mysticism and dead tradition. It was buried in it and people couldn't get to it. and They didn't know how to be right with God. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the apostles to the apostasy. And by apostles, they're the sent ones. Jesus sent the apostles with the gospel. But then the gospel started twisting and getting buried underneath dirt and filth. So let's begin with simplicity. Jesus was very clear. And I want you to go to Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. So Jesus gives the message. He dies. He rises again. He tells the apostles. An apostle means the sent one He sends them out to share the gospel. And here's the gospel. The apostles are people like Matthew, Peter, James, John, and Paul. And Paul describes their duty given by God in Acts chapter 20. And listen how clear and listen how simple it is. It's very simple. Starting in Acts 20, starting in verse 20. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, meaning for your gain. And I taught you in public from house to house. So he said, this is, what did I teach? Verse 21 is what he taught from house to house. Tell me is, if this is difficult. Verse 21, testifying, here's what I did. I testified both to Jews and Greeks. That encompasses everybody. A Jew was a person underneath the covenant. A Greek was somebody that was not. So we're Greeks, most of us. I found out I'm Jewish. Anyhow, let's keep reading. That's what my sister told me. Get off my back. Anyhow. <laughs> I did that for Derek. But look at verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance means I'm doing wrong. I, I need to change and turn. I've got to quit sinning. Well, how do I do that? Have faith in Christ. That's the gospel. That's what Paul preached. Pretty simple. And then look at verse 30 and 31. He says, But be careful with this message, because from among you, your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw men after them. Verse 31 says, Therefore be alert, remembering for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears. He cried about this. It mattered. So he's saying, here's the gospel, very simple. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And be careful, people are going to try to twist that. Well, over time, it became twisted, became perverted. And what happened is that instead of simplicity, there started to, what happens called syncretism. I'll, I don't have the time to go into the full scope of this, but in the Western world at that time, The ruling empire was Rome, based out of Rome and the Roman Empire. And it spread all the way, even to Israel. And the gospel spread, but the Romans didn't like it, so they persecuted the early Christians. For about 200, 300 years they did. They would put them in jail. They would have them play gladiatorial games. They would kill them. But then Roman emperor, which means king, Constantine was fighting with his men, and he had a vision of the sun. And in the sun, a a cross appeared, and he thought that was a sign from God. So he took that, that Christian faith is true, and if you take that symbol, you'll win. And sure enough, he turned the whole Roman country Christian. So instead of persecuting the Christians, he made everybody accept Christianity. It is here when the Gospel started getting buried and twisted and gunked up. For instance, in Rome, there were two prominent pagan religions. The first one was called Worship of the Sun. Mithras was the god they worshipped. The second one was the fertility goddess. Diana, or Artemis, was the fertility goddess. To worship the god Mithras, you needed what is called a celibate priesthood and they had secret rites. To worship the fertility goddess... She was known as Madonna and Child. Well, both of these pagan religions came under the fold of Christianity, and that's why the Roman Catholics this day have a celibate priesthood, and they have secret rites. That's why also Mary's worshipped as Madonna and Child. If you don't believe me, read history. If you don't believe me that I hate Catholics, I want to tell you most of my family is. I'm not here to bash them. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. We call this syncretism. Syncretism, instead of keeping the gospel pure, it's like a kitchen sink. It sucks everything in and makes it Christian. Well, over time, it became the standard practice of all of Europe. And it turned into sacramentalism because out of these pagan things, the way you please God is by sacrificing, by doing good works, and paying money. That's what sacramentalism is. You do sacraments. You earn favor with God by doing certain things. To make God happy, you need to do specific actions that the church required. And they'd change all the time. Sacramentalism reached its peak in the medieval years during the Holy Roman Empire or Roman Catholic Empire. Roman, Rome, that's the empire. Catholic means unified or universal. Catholic universal church. And here's what they, they believed. The Catholic Church was the mediator between the normal peasant and artisan and God. So you have a normal person who feeds cows, who makes as a blacksmith, and how does he get to God? He's got to go to church and do what the Catholic Church wants so then you reach God. Listen to what they said. Here's how they put it. The only way to have God as your father is to have the Roman Catholic Church as your mother. That's what they believed. They still do. They won't say it because it's kind of... It's a lot of conflict, but read their doctrinal statements. To honor God as Father, you needed church as your mother. So, in other words, there's really no way to get to God except through the church. To obtain grace, that means the favor of God, you needed to do good things. In other words, do good to be good. Go to church to be a good Christian. Do good to be good. And then the third one, to obtain his mercy. So if you did bad things and you needed him to forgive you, you needed to purchase it. You had to buy it. You probably heard the word indulgence. Basically what an indulgence is, is paying God to forgive you. Specifically to get you out a loved one out of purgatory. You don't believe me. I have received this indulgence from a guy in our church that I got one of those. My family does was issued, 1982. I looked it up. You can buy these for $20, but the whole family bought this. And I know some people that have paid about 2000 to 5000 for this. What does it do? Here's what it says. You, because of this purchase, have been conferred into the perpetual membership. And what happens? All members share perpetually in mass offered each day Also in the Masses, prayers, and sacrifices of our priests, students, and brothers. In other words, because you bought this, now all the prayers that are being given in church go to get your loved one out of purgatory. So you pay for this to get them out. It looks holy because they got a nice little picture there. But that's called art. Anybody can draw that. Kind of like, have you ever seen like evolutionary things, the ape to the man? That's an artistic drawing too. Nobody has an actual picture of that. I don't think Jesus looks like that, to be honest with you. But you buy that to get your loved one out of heaven. I had an aunt go to Magador, Yugoslavia to get water so she can put it on her crippled legs. Cost her a lot of money. But there was a man sent in the middle of this who saw it for what it was. I believe a man that was sovereignly designed and a man that called the church out because he started reading this and his eyes became open. That man was named Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King. Uh Uh-uh. Martin Luther. Martin Luther came about 1500s. Martin Luther King was relatively recent. And I'll tell you what, instead of having a dream, this guy had two things that were amazing. He had a mind that was brilliant. He was actually trained as a lawyer. He grew up in a wealthy home. His dad paid for him to be a lawyer so he could go to court and help his dad in business. Well, one day he was walking down the road and he got caught in a thunderstorm and lightning was flashing all around him. He thought he was going to die. And he said, if I die now, I'm going to hell and I don't know what to do about it. And so he became a monk, an Augustinian monk. So he could learn about how do I save my soul from wrath. The thing about Martin Luther, which I don't find too often anymore, he took God very seriously. He believed he existed. In fact, he would do communion. And I'm just, again, I'm not disparaging, I'm just telling you the truth. As a monk, he would do Mass. Mass. And during Mass, you have communion. And you lift a wafer, and it's round. You lift a wafer as a priest, and you say a Latin phrase. And that Latin phrase transforms that wafer for, from what once was bread. And as you bring it down after the Latin phrase, it turns into the actual body of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. They believe that's Jesus right there. Like that's really Him. And so Martin Luther before he had to do mass, the night before, he would be in his room beating his back because he knew a sinner would hold God and a a sinner can't face God. So he would be terrified. And so his, his priest friend would say, what's wrong with you, Martin Luther? Get up. Don't you understand? A sinner can't look at God with sin. Oh, you're taking it too serious. We should take it serious. Well, he also had the Word of God and the printing press. So in his room, go to Romans 117. He was studying the Bible. And he came upon chapter 1 of Romans and verse 17. And watch what it says. This was like a bolt of lightning in his soul, actually. Romans 116 begins by talking about the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. What's the gospel? Repent, turn from God, from your sins, and turn in faith. That's the gospel. It's the power of God. And in verse 17 says, for in it, in the gospel, in that message, is the righteousness of God. That means when I receive that, I become, like, I become holy like God. And I can face Him. In this set, Martin Luther, he's like, Oh, that's it? Is faith? Yeah. That set the world on fire. Because there's a guy named Tetzel, a guy who was selling these things. He was a priest, and they were trying to raise money for the church. And he said, I got a. The, the Pope gave this new indulgence that said he had he had this copper, he had this copper, I guess like bucket. And if you gave your money into that copper bucket, Here's what he said. As soon as the coin in the copper rings, a soul from purgatory will spring. So let's say my brother is dead, and I give him money on this special indulgence. The church promises he'll escape purgatory like that. Martin Luther saw peasants give their whole life savings and throw it in the copper. And it made him furious. So he wrote up 95 theses, This 95, these these statements, and he nailed it on the Wittenberg door, and they printed it on a printing press and gave it to peasants. And you know what it said, some of it? It said, A normal person with a Bible in their hand knows more than the Pope. What? That shook the world. It's called the Reformation. So, from studying the scriptures in his room, he made some discoveries concerning how a person gets right with God. Each one flies in the face of religion and sacramentalism. And I'm going to ask you to think about these six things. If you can't follow along, at least write them down. Write the verses down, I tell you, because you've got to know this. And just be happy. I'm not giving you 95 theses. I'm giving you six. Just six. These six are incredible! They're incredible! Incredible. But you gotta process. The first one is this justification. That means being declared right in the eyes of God is forensic. You're like, what is what is that forensic word? One of those ten dollar words they use in church. Hey, don't give me that. You guys watch all those forensic criminal shows on TV. And you know what that what that word means is evidence presented in the court of law. In God's court of law, you are, by faith, declared righteous. Imagine a judge. He's got a gavel. He's got a white wig on. And he's got a black coat on. And he stands you up there and he says, Why, why should I not condemn you? And you say, because I believe in your son and he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that. He takes that gavel and he says, boom, you're righteous. Oh, do you know what that does to a person? Watch what Jesus said. It's really simple. Go to John chapter 6. It's so simple. Why do we gunk up the gospel? Why do we make it so dusty? Jesus is pretty simple, even though he's God. John 6, verse 28. Watch how simple it is. The disciples are asking Jesus a question. It's it's the very first question I presented to you. Verse 28. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? What good things do I have to do to be good? What do I need to do to make God pleased and have peace? Verse 29. Tell me if this is hard to understand. Verse 29. This is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom He sent. That's it. That's it. Why is this so important? Because of number two. Because the number two is so important for you to know. Humanity, we are, by birth, mortally wounded by sin, we're broken. So if we try to do good things, they won't be good. Martin Luther put it like this. He said, imagine you're a cart and you have an axle. Let's say it's a steel axle where the wheels are on it. But let's say that axle is bent. Every time I push that cart, it will always turn. It will always turn. Because I have been born with sin, my axle morally is bent. Even though I live and move and have my being in God, he moves me. Every time he moves me, my axles bent. I'm I'm mortally wounded by sin. So if I try to be good, I actually what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to live apart from God, outside of faith. And that's the worst sin. So if you want to move it, it'll always go the wrong way. So that's why the third one needs to come in the law. The law is given to expose me. Not to give me a way to get to God, but to expose that I'm bent. It's like an x-ray. It shows me I'm a sinner. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse, uh, start with verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Because Paul's saying you can't get to God through the law. You can't. You won't be able to do it. You're bent. And so he's saying then is the law bad? Is it contrary to the promises of God? Then what's the purpose of the law? Certainly not it's not bad. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scriptures in prison... Everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned till the coming faith would be revealed. so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be we might be justified by faith. In other words, God gave you the law to show you you were broken, bent. So the law isn't designed for us to be good. Good luck trying to do these because you can't. You can't. Then the fourth thing is really cool. You'll like these words. Righteousness, that means my ability to stand before God, is alien and imputed. It's alien. And you can think of it like what immediately comes to your mind, like a flying saucer. Coming from outer space to me. Something from outer space came to me. Something from outer space took over my body. Yes, the Holy Spirit. He's outside of me. And then when I accept him, he's imputed into me. He comes into me. So when I believe, some righteousness outside of me is given to me. It's alien and it's imputed. You've probably heard the phrase, believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself. Reach down deep inside because that's all you need to succeed. Or like Whitney Houston sings, I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself. No, that's stupid. That is stupid. You might say, why are you screaming? Because you are going to be damned. We have bent axles. We need a spiritual mechanic outside of ourselves to make us right. That mechanic's name is Christ. Stop thinking so highly of yourself. Just because you had a feeling. I just know deep down inside is the real me. No. No. No fifth thing. Here's the most important thing. Faith is the means by which life comes in. That life is called grace. It's the life of God. When I believe in Jesus, I receive God in. Faith allows His life to enter me. Faith is the ability to connect to me. It's how how religion turns into life. Man, there's a lot of people play acting. I used to go into church like this. Almost like I'm hurt or something. I'd kneel like that. And then I'd leave the church, I'd be wretched. There's a lot of people that go, hadah, 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 What is that? Honestly, that's called a Gregorian chant that was like their cool hip-hop of the day. It's stupid. Oh, you are mocking, mocking religion. No, I'm not. I'm mocking humans' propensity to play act. We're posers. If I talk English, do you think I'm English? So when I say the Holy Bible, does that make me holy? Or if I can say... Jesus, does that make me holy? No. What I'm talking about is I want God himself to live in you, to really, really live in you. That's my job. And you only connect into this real life by faith to say, man, I'm a sinner. I need him. And we have so many actors. We have so many people crying because the music had a beautiful girl singing up there, and she sang a great song about an ocean, and I'm in love. What is that? What is that? We are saved by faith alone. And I'm telling you what, I will give my life for this message. Jesus says, you know, a tree by its fruit. Faith is about being connected to the vine. If I'm connected to the vine, fruit grows. I don't tape on fruit by good works or tears. Which is the final one. And if you think I'm loud, I'm sorry. I just am telling you I was lost for 23 years. If I would have died at the age of 22, I would never really know Christ. The final one is we are both just because we've been declared righteous. We're just, but we're still sinners. This keeps us both hopeful, meaning I bank on his promises. I trust him, not my acts, and humble. Colossians 2.6, write this down, says, Just as the faith we've received, we continue in it. So justification is by faith. So is sanctification, the process of being made like Christ. Faith is the only thing that keeps us dependent on the source of our strength. When we think we have done it by works, it's easy to take credit. Faith gives credit where credit's due. God alone. Here's another reformer, John Calvin, puts it like this. Listen to this. Let us envision for ourselves that judge, not as our minds naturally imagine him, but as he is depicted for us in Scripture, by whose brightness the stars are darkened, by whose strength the mountains are melted, by whose wrath the earth is shaken, who catches the wise in their craftiness, beside whose purity all things are defiled, whose righteousness not even an angel can bear. Who will stand confident before this throne? Really, there's only one person. It's Christ. And when I have faith, He stands in for me. So it's one thing to teach this, as Martin Luther taught it, but the key question is this, does the Bible actually support what I just said? And if it doesn't, who cares what Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Wycliffe, and the rest of all the old men say. They're just men, by the way. But I think uh, the Bible supports sola fide more than any other doctrine. And I'll just show you. I'll go, we're going to go quickly, write these things down. These are the three ways the Bible proves it. Number one is through a man named Abraham. He was the case study of faith. Abraham was the guy who was told to follow God to the promised land. Romans 4 is where we find Abraham. And I will read some of the verses, but I'm just going to tell you some finer points. You can look them up on your own. The first one, which I find fascinating, is do you know Abraham was 430 years older than the law? So he was 430 years before Moses came to mount, out of the mountain with the law. So if we want to be saved by the law, well, Abraham was saved before it, He's our precedent case. Why do we need it? Second thing about Abraham, he proves to us that justification is either by faith or by works, one or the other, not together. Actually, if you look at verse 2 of Romans 4, it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. So what he's saying in verse 2 is, okay, if he's boasting by works, Ain't going to work. So in other words, you either come by works or you come by faith. Which one do you choose? Because you can't flip-flop. I'm going to do works one week. I'm going to be a really good Christian one week and wear a tie. And then the next week, man, I'm going to be so tired of it, I'm just going to believe by faith. But man, I feel so guilty that I haven't done enough, so I'm going to go back to it. But you know what? I can't do all of it, so I'm just going to believe by faith. But you know, back and forth, back and forth. Either do one or the other. If you're going to do works, you've got to do all of them perfectly. If you're going to do faith, rest in faith. Third thing, look how clear this is. Faith procures or connects me like a plug to electricity, it procures for me the promise of righteousness. Listen to these verses. Tell me how you get around them. Verse 3 What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's where imputed. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. How do I get around these verses? I don't. They're truly true. And then the fourth, thing, fourth point I'll say is, so imputation, okay, Abraham, but what about me? Is this for me too? Yeah, it's for all of us. Look at verse 23 to 24, and it crescendos on chapter 5. Verse 23, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Oh, no, verse 24, but ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for, for our trespasses, for our justification. That our, and it, says, it means everybody. And that's why verse 1 of chapter 5 is awesome. Therefore, because of everything that went before. And you can say therefore kind of like you're tired out. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. End of story. Second thing I want to bring you to is Galatians chapter 2. I want to talk about Paul and his pork meal. Paul and his pork meal, he was talking to Peter. Peter and Paul eating pork, and they went to Peter Piper's to pick some pickle peppers. But Peter and Paul were buddies. They were both apostles. Peter and Paul hung out with the Gentiles. Peter and Paul ate some BLTs, bacon. The law says no pork, no bacon. Paul understood that. Peter saw some Jews coming along that he's kind of scared of, so he quit eating bacon even though he ate it before, and that makes Paul tick. He says, once you're a BLT eater, you're always a BLT eater. You can't go back. So here's the three things we learn. Chapter 2, verse 13. You, if you go back to the law, you become a hypocrite. Look at verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Here's what this means. If I tell people that I am saved by faith, but yet I try to prove that I'm godly by wearing ties, by doing all these things, I'm a hypocrite. That's a bad word. You know what a hypocrite means? I'm a mask wearer. I'm a poser. I'm a deceiver. Second thing the the pork meal proved is that justification is impossible to achieve to be achieved by works. Look at verse 16. Watch how clear it is. Yet we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith. So we also believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law because by works, no one will be justified. That's as clear as you can get. I don't even need to elaborate it. First thing that this pork meal told us also, this is awesome, the Spirit of God The alien righteousness, this hovering alien righteousness that comes inside of me, I receive it by hearing. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit, that alien entity from outer space? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Either works or faith. Which one? And it's, a, it's basically a question that begs the answer by faith, of course. So the third thing, Scripture, not just Abraham and Paul, but there's one more person that, man, I just want to bring your attention to. His name is Jesus. He's really important. Do you know what excites Jesus? I mean, really gets him going? It's all through the Gospels. One thing. Faith. All of these verses point to a time when Jesus was geared up. For instance, remember Cornelius the Centurion? He says to him, He calls the crowd around. He goes, "I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. This guy gets it. He gets it. Faith. So what are the nuts and bolts of this? So I'll just give three quick practical ways to live this? How do I live this? Even more importantly, how do I allow it to make a difference? How do I let it change me? Number one, learn and meditate on these words. Learn these words. Learn these words. I think some, I don't know how this happened. I, maybe you know. How did the church become sheerly for entertainment? Where I want to come on Sunday just to don't expect me to think Just make me happy. I don't know how that happened. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to learn these words and meditate on them. Go home and study them because they're everything. Number one, learn the word justification. Specific forensic. Learn it. Study it. Second one, alien righteousness. Learn that. Study it. You can even Google it. Go to Jared's. has got hundreds of books on these questions. Third one, and this this is the one I get the most excited about. The word is imputation, but double imputation. I'll just explain it to you real quick. I try to do this every once in a while. It's the greatest illustration I could think of. Imagine this glass is dirty, broken, and cracked. That's what I'm like when I'm born. I'm Ben Axel. When I believe in Jesus, the first thing that happens is singular imputation. He cleanses me of all unrighteousness. Okay, So, it's kind of like he cleans the glass and cleans the chips in the glass and makes it brand new. That's how people normally see forgiveness. Yes, that's first degree. This what I'm going to call second degree righteousness. What does that mean? This will blow you away. The moment you receive Christ by faith... Not only are you clean, but He fills you up with all of His righteousness. So everything Jesus ever did on earth, He was circumcised on the eighth day, He did the law perfectly, He died, is attributed to you. How do you add to perfection? We try to do this all the time. I need to do more. Why? When Jesus said, it's finished, it's yours. When you receive it, it's basically like this. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That means all of his righteousness is me. It's amazing. Study it, it will blow you away. Second thing how do we live this out? Stop feeding your sacred cows. What do I mean by that? There are things we think we need to do to be saved. For instance, the tradition of the Baptist church are altar calls. Altar calls do nothing for you. Do you know the sinner's prayer does nothing for you? Nothing. What do you mean I went forward? A lot of people go forward. All that matters, have you really believed in Jesus? You can do it sitting in your seat without anybody seeing. Do you know that? Yeah, but you've got to make a public proclamation. That's great. It is. Confess with your mouth. I understand that, but we have sometimes sacrificed the action for the reality. And then the action becomes more important than the reality. And all we do is promote the action. And it causes a lot of people to be dead. I think we do that with what we wear to church. I think we do that with crying, honestly. I think sometimes crying is sincere, but crying doesn't necessarily mean you're sincere. I think we do this in this area with our family. I was born into this family, and because I was born into this family, I'm okay, because mom's okay, because grandma's okay. And somehow we think grandma's righteousness is like a wave, it splashes to me. Nope, no, no. You are going to someday face God by yourself. You alone. And you can't say, Jesus, talk to my grandma. She's already in here. Your grandma will come out and say, son, don't lay that on me. And then the third thing is come and die. We're going to come here, and the idea of death is this. It means everything I think I am that makes me important or why God should accept me, it's broken. I need to die to it. I need to quit being impressed with myself. And I need to be impressed with Him. That's what this table's all about Him. We have, we have juice, which represents His blood. It was perfect. He spilled it. And bread that represents His body, He broke it. How can we add to this?